Share it with us. All God breathed or inspired. Then what happens? Suitable or profitable for what? For a lot of stuff. For doctrine. For yeah. All. Does your your translation said all scripture? So that means it includes Genesis ten, right? Okay, keep Second Timothy three sixteen in mind. Because Genesis 10 is before us. And uh, Brother Chuck, I don't know if you know this, has this uncanny ability to dump the hard stuff on me. <laughs> and thus, he comes away. I'm just telling you. He comes away always look, smelling like a rose. And I have a genealogy. He sticks me with genealogies and the passages of Scripture that have to do with women's roles. That's what he does. <laughs> And he gets, he gets like John 3.16. You know what I'm saying? It's okay. My people are used to being persecuted. Yeah. Yes, Miss Maureen? <laughs> That's what I was fishing for. Thanks, Maureen. That is so true. Oh, my goodness. Well, I don't. I don't. But thanks, Tom. (laughs) Metaphorically speaking. Uh, I will give you a chance to make your way to Genesis 10, and we're going to take a look at it. While you turn there, let me invite you to go to Israel with me in September. How many want to? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Let's go. Uh, We're doing a missions trip. It'll be our fifth in September, Lord willing, we go back to the same places, same people groups, because every time we do, relationships deepen and we have more opportunities. Uh, we, when did we go? Was it two years ago? Whoa. Did they have Israel then? So anyway, um, we go with a nice group of about 25. Uh, we'll have an informational meeting this Wednesday night after the service in room 1102. That's Dr. Jim Hastings' iConnect classroom. It's in this wing as you enter. And I'd love to have you come just so that I can answer your questions and uh, as best I could and maybe speak to you a little bit about the trip. Not everyone is suitable uh, for this kind of thing, but many are. And if you're in any way interested, please come by and let me... Uh, give you information and we'll talk about it. The dates are September 8th to the 18th missions trip. We call it that here. When we get there, we don't use the M word missions. That doesn't go over too, too big in the Middle East. We use other words. I'll, I'll uh, tell you about them. But for now, it's a missions trip to Israel. And if you're interested, come on by after the service. By the way, This Wednesday service is really going to be a good one. We're ordaining one of our young ministers and really want people to see what ordination means. And so we're going to take the time in the service to hear from the candidate, to pray over him and to include various elements that show to you how important uh, the ordination procedure is for us. So that'll be 6 o'clock, a very special a time We've been going through Romans on Wednesday night. We're going to depart from it in order to have this special opportunity. All of our students are coming this Wednesday night because the young man we're ordaining will minister to, is ministering to our students. And we want our younger people to see what this is all about and maybe begin to sense God's calling on their own life, perhaps to consider going into full-time ministry. And then we want our older people to see uh, a new, fresh crew of younger ministerial staff coming behind us because God's work never, ever depends on the man it's, or the woman. It's always the message and the Messiah, and they continue through each generation. So we'd like you to see a little bit more of a new crop of ministers we're blessed with here at the church. So that'll be this Wednesday night, and then we'll have our Israel meeting after that in room 1102. All right, I stalled long enough. Are you in Genesis 10? So take a look. These are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. Have you ever heard the term post-diluvian 
If you do, don't get nervous about it. It means after the deluge, after the flood, post-diluvian. That's where we are in Genesis chapter 10. The flood has taken place with the result that the world was depopulated. Now, after the flood, post-diluvian, Genesis 10, we're going to see how the world is being repopulated. It's not to be taken lightly. God gave humankind a promise early on in Genesis. You people have a mandate and a blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then came sin and the ensuing universal flood. And God, the God of all grace, whose grace far exceeds our sin, renews the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. That's what he told Noah in Genesis 9. And now we're going to see how it's being fulfilled in Genesis chapter 10. This chapter is called the table of the nations or the family of the nations. And it is probably the uh, most accurate, uh, most detailed, most precise, and by far oldest extant, do you know the word word extant? It means something in existence. The oldest extant genealogical record of the nations of the world. Look no further than Genesis 10. If you want to find out where did we get Europeans and Asians and Caucasians and Africans? And where did we get me? Where are my roots? They're traced here to Genesis chapter uh, 10. So it's a significant, albeit difficult chapter. I'll tell you why it's difficult. Uh, lots of names mentioned here. And it's a little tough to discern whether the names are, na- are names of specific individuals or places or groups of individuals. So you have to kind of go through it and try to discern it based on um, linguistic indicators. For instance, we will see certain words ending in the letters I am, im, like Elohim, which is the plurality of God and all his majesty, or goyim. Have you heard the word goyim? That means the nations of the world, the Gentile nations, goyim. So when you see an I am ending, we know that's a people group, not a person. So it's a little hard to discern. When we go through this, I'll point out to you what the best scholarship indicates about where the people and places named in this text exist in our modern world. But where we can't be sure, I'll tell you that also. So it's a bit of a tricky chapter. Now, when you think of the sons of Noah, you think of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, do you not? And when you think of the sons of Noah, which you probably don't do often, but when you do, you always think of them in that order. It's always that way, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Why? Many people say because that corresponds to their um, um, the way they were born. Shem, and then Ham, and then Japheth, the oldest first, and so on, some people say. But in this text, what you're going to see is that the order is changed, and first we're going to deal with the descendants of Japheth, then of Ham, and Shem last. Why? This is not meant to be uh, a historical, geographical thing. It's theological in its purpose, meaning God is showing us the line of Messiah. Look, you have the entire population of the world as far as my arms can go. And then what you get is a narrowing down of the population of the world this way until finally it lands on the unmistakable one who is the Messiah. So believing in Jesus is not a blind leap from logic to faith. It's a very rational decision we make to see he is the only one who really could be the redeemer of Israel. So that's kind of what's happening. So first, uh, Japheth and his line is dispensed with because those are largely European nations. Not unimportant, but they didn't have much contact with the line of Messiah, namely Israel, as you'll see. So first, we deal with the European nations. This is the way it, it works in the Bible. First, um, the person or people group least significant, not inherently, I mean, but for the purpose intended, are dispensed with first, and then God lands with the people or person who, 
who warrant the focus of attention. So first the Japhethites, then the Hamites, the descendants of Ham, and you'll see those are North African primarily and Middle Eastern people, much more contact with Israel. And then finally the Shemites, see the order is reversed, the descendants of Shem, because those are Jews and Arabs and, and play a very significant role uh, with regard to the line of Messiah. So that's kind of sort of the three-part outline. First, the descendants of Japheth, then of Ham, then of Shem. And that's what you get in Genesis chapter 10. So let's begin uh, in verse 2. The sons of Japheth were Gomer. Uh, most believe those are the Sumerians, a people group originally inhabiting an area north of the Black Sea and corresponding roughly to modern-day southern Russia and a place called, have you heard of this, the Ukraine. Have you heard of Ukraine? It's in the news today, isn't it? Because uh, Mr. Putin is showing his true colors once again. You know about all this, Crimea and 100,000 Russian troops uh, amassed along the borders of Ukraine and... um, yeah. By the way, you can pray for the Christians in the Ukraine and others. They are really, really, really under fire. Anyway, the Sumerians or the descendants of Gomer uh, come from those areas. Then there's Magog. Have you heard of Magog? Significant in biblical prophecy. Probably a people group that settled in modern-day Turkey. And then Medi, Probably the Medes. Have you heard of the Medes and the Persians? These are the Medes who inhabited a region northeast of the Tigris River, and that would be in modern-day Iran. And then Javan, those are people who settled in what we now know as southern Greece and western Asia Minor. Then there's Tubal and Meshech. Both people groups inhabited central and eastern Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. Uh, And then you have a place called Tiras, mentioned only here in the entire Bible, T-I-R-A-S. Some relate this to ancient Thrace, the Thracians, you've heard of them, also Greek-speaking peoples. And so primarily we're dealing with European folks at this point. Verse 3, and the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, uh, identified most uh, probably with a group called the Scythians, who were tribes from southern Russia occupying areas north and east of the Black Sea. And then a people group called Rifath, unidentified. We don't know who they are. Togarma, mentioned in Ezekiel as Beth Togarma, a people group associated with sites uh, far north. When I say north, north of what? Uh, The land of Canaan. That's the frame of reference for all this, modern-day Israel. So this is a people group north of modern-day Israel and probably uh, in Asia Minor. Verse 4, and the sons, how are we doing so far? Is this, is this pretty inspiring for you? <laughs> Remember, all scripture is inspired by God. I mean, it's in here. I didn't write it. We're just obligated to read it. No, no, we want to read it. You'll, you'll see there's good stuff. Verse 4, the sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Kitim and Dodanim. See Kitim and Dodanim? See that I am ending? Plural. Meaning we know these are not uh, specific people. They are people groups. The Kitim, probably a people group kin to the Greeks, Mediterranean folks who settled probably in Cyprus. And the Dodanim, you have to trust me on this, it's actually Rodanim. Many people think this is a reference to Rhodes. Have you ever been, anyone been to Rhodes? Aegean Sea, Greek islands, anything like that? Anyway, these are people around the Aegean Sea and the islands they're in. Uh, Alicia is also mentioned in Ezekiel, and that probably is a reference to Cyprus. Then Tarshish. Have you ever heard of Tarshish? Who comes from there? Saul of Tarshish, otherwise known as, what's his name? Paul. However, here's the problem. We don't know for sure that the Tarshish indicated here in Genesis 10 is the one he came from. There's lots of discussion. It gets quite complicated, and you can read on it if you're interested. I am not. Uh, I, <laughs> I just want to tell you, one Tarshish, uh, some people say, is, is Spain. And there's reasons to commend all these different points um, of you and, 
and uh, and some people uh, spend spend time enjoy reading this stuff. But I I like American Idol, and so uh, <laughs> you know this is enough. I think so. Then now here's the deal. Verse five, you have a summary statement which will appear two more times after each of the uh, other two sons of Noah. So here, after four verses, telling us about the line of descent from Japheth, primarily Europeans, uh, you have this summary statement, verse 5. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands. By coastlands of the nations, that means all people groups who, if you wanted to access from ancient Canaan, you had to do so by sea. So these would be people settling around the Mediterranean coastlands primarily. Not necessarily directly on the coast, but people who, if you wanted to get to from Israel, you had to get to by traveling by sea. So, so this is the record of all these people who uh, settled on the coastlands and were separated. Notice, uh, four categories of separation. Here's the first. Into their lands, that's a geographical division. Everyone according to his language, that's a linguistic uh, differentiation amongst people groups. According to their families, that's an ethnic classification. And into their nations, that's political. So you find out here, this is the book of beginnings. If you want to find out how political groups, ethnic groups, national groups, geographical groups began, here it is. It's right here. These groups were settled as they are today. We divide, sadly, we divide today the same way, politically, geographically, nationally, and sadly, uh, in terms of our ethnicity. The same thing happens today. So here are the four uh, classifications by which people began to be divided. Now, notice Japheth is dealt with in four verses. Then you have a fifth summary verse, and that's it. Now, if you're of European descent, I mean no disrespect, but you're dispensed with in four measly verses. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, but you're still, God loves you and all the rest. You're just not very significant, apparently. No, no, that's not actually true. You really are. Remember, remember, this is a theological statement, you'll see. This has to do with the line of Messiah and us seeing how the nations of the world Related to the line of Messiah. Those who did not directly relate, either by geographic distance or uh, some other uh, difference, they are dispensed with first. So the European nations here come from Japheth, and they're dealt with in four verses. Now, Stan, you had your hand up, I think. What a great question. Did you all hear what Stan said? Great. By the way, I baptized Stan uh, just recently on Wednesday, Wednesday night. It was really a good, a good time. That's Stan's daughter right there. She watched Daddy being baptized. and His sister came and other relatives. That was great, great fun. That was a privilege, I'll tell you that. I almost didn't get you up. <laughs> so Stan's question is really, really good. Since this is what it says here, doesn't that imply that's the way, that's the way God wants it? Now, here's the deal. This text is not telling us how all this happened. We don't know if the division of humankind came from uh, uh, morally neutral grounds or maybe it was God's intervention in the form of judgment. It's not until we get to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 11, that we find out the whole Tower of Babel incident that it was God as a means of judgment who confused their languages. So what you have here is not things given to us in a strict chronological order. You would think Genesis 10 takes place before 11. Not true. Genesis 10 gives us uh, a rendition of the origins of all the nations, which leads to the question, how did all this happen? Genesis 11, Genesis 11 tells us how it happened. God scattered them. The scattering of humankind, in my opinion, based on Genesis 11, was not a good thing. Now, God wanted people to fill the earth, but not necessarily to be divided 
politically, ethnically, linguistically. That had to do to limit man's capacity to have faith in himself, as we'll see in Genesis chapter 11. But don't get nervous. God's going to reverse all this. He's bringing us together. I'll show you in just a second. But anyway, that's a great, I think, a great observation. So, and I'll show you something before we finish, if I get there, about a guy named Peleg, meaning division, which gives a hint uh, as to how the nations got to be divided. So hang in there just for a few more verses. Okay, so, so the descendants of Japheth are, are, are done. Now that is a good ring right there. See the way I think. If you're going to have a phone that rings, it shouldn't be, you know, like ballet music or something like that. <laughs> that is an actual... This is, listen, bud, I give you credit. I got mine right over here because I'm expecting a call. I didn't turn mine off, so you may be able to get me. And just, But mine is like a wimpy. Mine is like a steward. It's your wife, you know. <laughs> I, don't know what I, yeah. I just get Okay, so look, <clears throat> now we get to the uh, next son of Noah, Ham, in verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush. That is probably a reference to people groups who settled in modern-day Sudan, in Africa, north of present-day Ethiopia. And Mitzrayim, that's a reference to Egypt, North African peoples. Put, very likely, modern-day Libya and parts of Somalia, parts of Somalia. And then Canaan, what modern-day countries would represent Canaan? Anybody know? Yeah, that's Israel. That's modern-day Israel, Canaan. In verse 7, the sons of Cush were Seba and Herla and Sabta and Ra'ama. Ra'ama, probably um, parts of Saudi Arabia. And Sabtika and the sons of Ra'ama were Sheba, probably modern-day Yemen. And Dedan. So what you can see is that the descendants of Ham seem to represent North African peoples and some Middle Eastern peoples. Verse 8, now Cush became the father of Nimrod. So now what's going to happen for a few verses is that the text is going to center on one person in particular named Nimrod. When you're reading tough passages of scripture like a genealogy, You should read it, and then as soon as something interrupts the flow, the formula, or the pattern, boom, give it attention. So we've been going through a list of hard-to-pronounce names, people groups we can't quite identify, and now for the next three or four verses, you're going to get much more biographical information about someone named Nimrod. So you got to stop when you see something like that in the scriptures, sort of a literary device. You know, you're going along, you're, you're a little sort of comatose, you're reading all these names. And then you run into this guy, Nimrod, of whom it says he became a mighty one on the earth. He gets special attention here. Why? Remember, this is the book of beginnings. Through Nimrod probably began the first tyrannical government in humankind. We've had many since. He was probably the first empire builder. This is the beginning of sinful imperialism. Uh, This is the beginning of oppression of people groups for one's own self-aggrandizement. He began empire places like Babylon and Assyria. Why is more attention given to him? Well, because Babylon and Assyria have become Israel's, to this day, perennial foes. Remember, it's not about the Jews. It's not about the Hebrews. It's not about Israel. It's about the line of Messiah, which God in his sovereignty chose to draw out through the Jews. That's where they have significance, not inherent significance by no means, but God chose to be birthed of a Jewish mom, uh, not an Italian or Irish or French mom. He could easily have done that, but he chose to do it through a Hebrew woman named Miriam, not Mary, by the way. Uh, that's a stretch. Her name is Miriam or Miriam. And uh, 
if you object to that, you can take it up with God. But that's, that's, that's what he chose to do. And so, so he's giving us an, a notion of the um, alignment of all the nations with reference to the nation through whom God graciously, graciously is going to bring forth a redeemer. So um, Nimrod's name comes from a Hebrew root meaning to rebel or to revolt. So that gives us some idea of what he was about. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter. Is hunting a good thing or a bad thing? But it's a good thing. Ah, Joe is right. It depends on who you're hunting. If it's a deer, cool. If it's another person, maybe not so good. This seems to imply, because his name means, let us revolt, we shall rebel, that he probably was hunting down other people. It says before the Lord. That doesn't mean with God's approval. It means in full sight of God. He is the most high God. There is no world tyrant who's going to get away with murder. There is a justice maker who's aware of all things that take place here on earth. You know, a lot of times when I, I get upset about life, I, uh, it's because I fail to remember the most high God. He, from his vantage point, he sees all things. He, he will govern with righteousness and justice and for those who refuse his mercy, they'll have to meet up with his justice, you see. So guys like Nimrod think they have free reign, but they, but they do not. So he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the, before the Lord. So since his name again seems to mean revolt or rebel, this uh, so-called mighty one on the earth and mighty hunter before the Lord was probably a mighty leader in, the, in, re, in leading rebellion against the sovereignty of God. He was probably a mighty hunter in the sense of oppressing and subjugating uh, other people groups. And the beginning of his kingdom, it says in verse 10, was Babel, Babylon, which we will read about in the next chapter, and Erech and Akkad and Kalne and the land of Shinar. So he was the founder of the world's earliest Imperial world powers, Babylon and Assyria. And by the way, uh, do you know we can't really identify Nimrod with any particular historical personage? There are hypotheses and there's speculation, but we don't know why. <laughs> because he's not important enough in the grand scheme of redemptive history for us to know. But do you know your name, if you're a Christian, is inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life? Your name specifically is recorded. Jesus knows you by name. You have significance in terms of his redemptive program that far exceeds the significance of this tyrant who came and gone. And of all tyrants who come and go. Ultimately, the one who has worth and value and significance in God's eye is the man or the woman who says, Jesus, I would like you to be my personal savior. And immediately, we're transferred from meaninglessness, from temporality, and our name is inscribed in a book of eternal destiny. And we have significance bearing the image of Almighty God and being his representatives and ambassadors on earth. Isn't it interesting that in the kingdom of God, things are reversed and the so-called big shots are not so big and the so-called, uh, you know, maybe insignificant people by society standards are elevated to well, what does it say in the New Testament? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Oh, my God. It doesn't say that about Nimrod. We don't even know who this creep is. But our names are inscribed in the, in the book of life. So verse 10, oh, I read that. Verse 11, from that land, he went forth into Assyria and he built Nineveh. Have you heard of Nineveh? He built it, and also some other places named there, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala. Nineveh, by the way, is located, was located on the east bank of the Tigris River in present-day Iraq, opposite a city called Mosul. I never would have heard of it, and perhaps not you, until our armed forces were sent there. 
And many of our troops were sent. Some lost their lives in Mosul. It's this particular area of Nineveh that we're reading about here. Verse 12, in Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. So all these areas correspond to the region of the Tigris and Euphrates valleys. And these are all the beginnings of modern, uh, of um, well-known empires like of the Sumerians and the Babylonians and the Akkadians and the Assyrians. They're all traceable uh, to the uh, rather carnal efforts of Nimrod. Verse 13, and Mitzrayim became the father of Ludim and Anamim and Lahabim and Naphtumim. See, see the IMs? These are all people groups, plural. And Pathrusim, those are people uh, probably who resided in what is now southern Egypt. And Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines. Now, some read this and say, aha, you can't trust the Bible. This is so anachronistic. They say the Philistines didn't get into the Middle East until much later. Philistines, a seafaring people, probably from the islands of the Aegean Sea, left for some reason, journeyed to the shores of the Middle East, across the Mediterranean, settled uh, in places, um, you know, along the uh, Mediterranean seacoast of modern Israel, like uh, Gath and uh, uh, where Goliath is from, and, and Ashdod, perhaps you've heard of Ashdod, places like that. So they say this is anachronistic. The Philistines don't come to later. But, eh, let me tell you something. These are people who are willing to commit uh, intellectual suicide just to disprove the Bible. Isn't that amazing? Here's a book of redemption and good news, and people still want to disgrace it and denigrate it. I don't get it. Boy, when folks are in darkness, you're really in darkness. You and I were like that one time, huh? We can't look down on anyone. But you can be so enveloped by darkness that the message of the Bible, which is to redeem, forgive, adopt, pardon, make you an heir. No, they say, this is an error in the Bible. It's not true. I'll tell you how the problem could be solved. There were at least, uh, there were several migrations of Philistines, doggone it. There was an early one and a later one. This is simply a reference to an earlier migration of the Philistines from the Aegean uh, the islands of the Aegean Sea, to what is the land of Canaan. And then there was a later one. Later they came, they had iron chariots and all that kind of stuff. This is much earlier in human history. Why is that explanation not more acceptable than there's error in the Bible? Why are people so quick to find find errors in the Bible when there are none? All right. Anyway, here you got the Philistines, and then you have the Kaftorium, probably folks who settled on the island of Crete. So now what happens in verses 15 to 19 is you have a, with more specificity, you have a delineation of the descendants of Canaan. Once again, because the Canaanites become very, very significant with regard to the Israelites, the people through whom Messiah would come. So here it goes, verse 15. Canaan became the father of Sidon or Sidon, if you want to say Sidon. Would you like to guess at what modern-day country Sidon is a, a reference to? Lebanon. Yeah, that's Lebanon. Yeah, yeah. Tyre and Sidon. We read that in the Bible. This is Sidon. That's Lebanon. And this was his first one. And then Heth. So here you have to trust me here. Uh, these are actually the Hittites, probably. How do you get Hittites from Heth? It's a long discussion. And um, we're not going to do it for a few reasons. One, I don't understand it. And uh, uh, I'm not interested. Oh, <laughs> these are probably the Hittites. But again, the people say, oh, no, the Hittites. No, 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 they come from Turkey. It's a lot later. No, 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 no. These are our earlier Hittites who settled in the Middle East, for crying out loud. So verse 16, and the Jebusite. Oh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard uh, of a place called Jebus? Jebus? The Jebusites lived in Jebus. Does anyone know where Jebus is? It's Jerusalem. If you go to Israel today and set your feet in Jerusalem, you're in Jebus. That's ancient Jebus, which was um, resided in by this subgroup of Canaanites known as the Jebusites. David made it the capital of Israel over 3,000 years ago. But if you go particularly to a place called the City of David, some here have been to the City of David, that is Jebus. 
that is ancient Jebus. So there are the Jebusites, and you got the Amorites, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite. Uh, let me tell you something about the Sinites. As we go through this, uh, we're looking at the roots of Europeans, Africans, uh, Jews, um, Arabs. Um, w- what about Asians? That's tricky. It's very hard to locate the descent of Asian peoples in the table of nations. It's there. It's just a little less certain than the other groups. Some think uh, reference to Asian peoples is given right there in verse 17. See Sinite? Have you ever heard the word Sino, like Sino-American discussion? It's a reference to China. So some people say uh, Asian peoples very likely descended from, from the Sinites here. I don't know this for sure, but that's what some say. Then you have the Arvadite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. The Hamathites were residents of a place called the Hamath, uh, which is a city in modern-day uh, Syria along the River Orontes. Of course, you're reading about Syria, are you not? Just recently, a Muslim group took over another small village in Syria and are in the process of murdering Christians there. It's very fascinating to me that the United Nations seems to be far out of balance in dumping on Israel. Uh, But you have Christians being slaughtered all over the place. The United Nations is too busy calling Israel an apartheid state. Let me tell you something. If it was, go. Go for it. But if you go to Israel, if you want to preach Jesus on any street corner, you can do whatever you want. Now, you may get punched in the face, for sure. But you'll be soon protected by an Israeli uh, police officer. There's no institutionalized um, persecution of Christians in Israel. It's freedom of religion. I mean, the Catholic Church owns half of Israel, for crying out loud. You have Mormons there. You've got uh, Greek Orthodox. You've got Russian. You have the Baha'i faith there. You have, I mean, on the Mount of Beatitudes, there is a church financed by Mussolini. <laughs> there it is, right overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's a democracy. Why is it that the United Nations got nothing to do but beat up on on Dinky Israel, the size of New Jersey. It's the only true democracy in the Middle East. You know, look at here. This is not a political statement. It's just something I'm so perplexed at. Why does our parent, our president stick his thumb in the eye of our only friend in the Middle East and make friends with those who are our enemies? I don't know. As stated by Congressman Randy Weber. Absolutely. You're right, bro. You know, I want to tell you something. The reason why I say it's not political is that I think it's worse than that. If it's just a political deal, vote someone else in. Problem solved. I think it's a spiritual deal. Look at here. You have Satan versus Savior. Whatever the Savior is interested in, so too is Satan. The Savior is interested in Israel. Whatever your particular point of view is, if you're a biblicist, for crying out loud, that's the narrow piece of land he chose to be birthed in, to grow in, to be crucified, buried, and resurrected, and to be ascended from, and to return to. That's the narrow piece of land he chose to establish his kingdom on earth. He's not going to do it in Austin, Texas. I'm telling you, I read the Bible. Jerusalem says, Jerusalem. So, so because he's interested in it, that's why Satan is interested in it. And boy, Satan can sink his claw into the lives of those who wish to be darkened in their understanding. And then you make all kinds of decisions, uh, financial and political and relational and marital and moral and all the rest. But the fundamental issue is, good night, are you in the domain of darkness or have you been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son? Once you're transferred from one domain to another, you become enlightened. You have a different point of view of same-sex marriage and abortion and all the rest. Everything changes when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you get the mind of Christ, for crying out loud. So, okay, this is serious. Boy, I'm getting hot. Am I flushed? Let me see. I've got to take another Valium. <laughs> All right, so look. Um, verse 19, the territory that... Oh, now look how good God is. He's going to tell us what the ancient territory of the Canaanites were. Why? Because it's going to become the territory of the Israelites. Yeah, soon. 
I mean, in in Genesis. So here's what it says. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon, Sidon. We identify that as Lebanon. So so keep track of the direction. That's in the north. As you go toward Gerar, to get to Gerar from Sidon, you've got to go south. As far as Gaza, now you're going really south. Now you know where Gaza is, right? The Gaza today we hear about in the news is the same Gaza we're reading about uh, over here. It's Gaza on the Mediterranean coast, contiguous with Egypt, parts of parts of Egypt. By the way, did you know the um, the number one sport in Gaza is making missiles? Yeah, that's what it is. it's like a recreational pursuit to fire missiles on uh, Israeli citizenry um, just just across from from Gaza. Um, by the way, my by the ways are going to get me in big trouble, but. But, uh, you know, you get to be a certain age, you don't worry about it anymore. By the way, I know there's an outcry for the formation of a Palestinian state. What about Gaza? Why not make that the Palestinian state? I don't understand this. You know, Israel, Israel, the occupier, pulled out its own citizenry, thousands of them, kicking and screaming, and turned it over in 2007, I think it was. What's happened to Gaza since then? Man, I love Randy Weber. Good night. I just love him. Oh, for crying out loud. Mrs. Weber, you should keep him. Yeah, I, just a suggestion. It's just a thought. You think, listen, listen to me. They fire more missiles. You say, oh, the poor people of Gaza. But listen, we should, our hearts ought to go out to oppressed people. That's not Israel oppressing them. That's called Hamas oppressing them. Doggone it. They used to be on our list of terror groups, but now we negotiate with them. They don't recognize Israel's right to exist. I want to know how you can have a conversation with someone who doesn't recognize your right to be. You tell me that. What's your starting point? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you everything if you just refuse to kill me. How's that? Is that a point? Of, is that a, does that look like an, a balanced negotiation? By the way, that's what Senator Kerry wants Israel to do for crying out. Stop calling yourself the Jewish state, you know, make nice, give away stuff, release all these uh, Palestinian terrorists, and maybe they'll sit at a table with you. Give them more stuff. There's nothing to give, doggone it. There's nothing to give. It's almost indefensible geographically now. Anyway, Hamas is the ruling entity uh, in Gaza uh, right now. And that was the land of the, the, the Canaanites. So from Sidon, you go down south to Gaza. Now look what it says. A- and then you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Ever hear of those places? Yeah, probably on the southeast corner of the Dead Sea. And then other places we're not so sure about, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. We don't know where that is, but we do know it looks like God is tracing the land of the ancient Canaanites from the north, and you're sweeping down from, from modern-day Lebanon. You're sweeping down to Gaza, and south. then you're going southeast. You're going uh, uh, south of the Dead Sea around Sodom and Gomorrah. Then you sweep up, and that is roughly the bounds of uh, ancient Canaan and modern-day Israel. Given, given right there. Those are the boundary lines. Then verse 20. Uh, these are the sons of Ham. Again, another summary statement. Sons of Ham, uh, according to their, see again, families, languages, lands, and nations. So we've looked at the descendants of Japheth, the descendants of Ham. And from this point on, uh, I think I'm making a statement that is defendable or defensible. From this point on in Genesis... Uh, the texts will deal almost exclusively with the Shemites, the descendants of Shem. Why do I say that? Because from the Shemites, uh, Trish, I'll get you just a second, come, uh, come the Hebrews, from the Hebrews, uh, well, come Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. From all those people come Jesus the Messiah. Trish? Yeah, you ask a great question. I I would have preferred that he did. <laughs> you know, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways? I don't know. It seems like that would have made things easier, but he didn't. <laughs> I can't hear you, Tom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So there's a lot for us to learn from the process by which the land came to be Israel's. Yeah, good, good, good. That's what I like about Trish. Whenever Trish asks a question, it's usually a statement in the form of a question. And she and she's trying to get me to give the right answer, which I never do. But I got, I got it now. And that's a great insight. Absolutely correct. It's the process of faith development by which God operates here in Genesis. Okay, look. So uh, Shem, verse 20. Also, by the way, what, anyone know what Shem means in Hebrew? It means the name, the name. It's very ironic in the next chapter, if we ever get there uh, next week, uh, it said the nations of the world, people got together, they wanted to make a name. They wanted to make a Shem for themselves. And God says, no, I have affixed a special name to one people group. <laughs> you can buck me all you want, uh, but you neither will have a name, <clears throat> nor will you have your big urban areas. I will scatter you through the earth. Okay, so there's Shem. And from Shem comes the Shemitic or Semitic peoples, Arabs and Jews. Um, I think it is inconsistent to be a devoted Christian and be anti-Semitic. It's an irrational position because Jesus was a Semite. <laughs> it's just a crazy kind of a thing to me. In the name of Christ, there has been, I mean, Nazis wore belt buckles. Uh, Gott by uns, God with us. They had signs going through some of the concentration camps. You killed our God, now we kill you. Uh, this is one of the reasons why Jews are not too thrilled about converting to Christianity, by the way. Because the Nazis identified, of course they weren't representing Christ, I know this, but identified, they identified with him. But it's inconsistent to call yourself a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus and be anti-Semitic because he was a Semite. Does this make sense to you? It doesn't make any sense to me. I didn't think you have to like Jews, nobody... I mean, there's a number I don't like for crying out. You should see, you should meet my family. It has nothing to do with that. But to want to put us in ovens, that's a little different. You know, I just don't understand. Call you, wear a cross. That's a little inconsistent with your savior who is a Semite. So from the Semites come Arabs and Jews. Isn't that ironic? Arabs and Jews at odds with one another, uh, to some extent, to a large extent today. We're cousins. What a shame. Just goes to show you, there is not one thing we can do on our own behalf to be reconciled to one another. But when the Prince of Peace inhabits our hearts, then reconciliation, first with him and then one another, can take place. When we go to Israel, uh, I have no problem embracing an Arab believer uh, just as I would anybody else. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord Jesus can make a difference that nobody else can. Okay, so also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Do you have Eber, E-B-E-R in your Bible? Very significant. Ibiru is the underlying word. Ibiru, what does that sound like? Hebrew. The Hebrews come from Eber. So we're going to see, particularly in the next chapter, that the line of Eber is really focused on because the... Uh, uh, the first big gun to come from Eber, Abraham is going to further narrow down the line of descent of the Messiah. So you have Eber, a son of Shem, older brother of Japheth, and children were born. Verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam. Do you know that's a reference to Iran? Again, people say error in the Bible because the Iranians are not Arab people. They are Persian people. Even you know, those people don't get it. This simply means... Early on in the history of Elam, it probably was settled and populated by Arabic peoples. Later, the Persian Empire, but not early on. And then it says Asher, that's modern-day Iraq, Arpachshad, uncertain, Lud and Aram, Assyria. That's Assyria. Now, verse 23 and on, the sons of Aram were Uz and Hull and Gether and Mash and Arpax, by the way, are you looking for a baby name? How about Mash? Mash would be, in case you're wondering. You could, you could be male, boy or girl, Mash. And, uh, and Arpachshad became the father of Shelah. Shelah became the father of Eber. And two sons were born to Eber. See, Eber is now like the focus. 
And the name of the one was Peleg. Peleg, what does that mean? Well, look, for in his days, the earth was divided. Ah, Peleg means division. It's like when he was born, his parents named him as a reflection of societal conditions. When Peleg was born, the earth was divided. How? Well, we need Genesis 11 to tell us how. So once again, I think what's happening here is not in chronological order. It's not meant to be. Genesis 11 was the cause of all the division. Genesis 10 describes the specifics of the division. It was in Peleg's day when the earth was divided. How? Tower of Babel. Wait till we get there next week. And then it says, verse 26 and on, Joktan became the father of Almadad and Sheleph and Hazar, Maveth, and Jerah, and Hadorim, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobah. All these were the sons of Joktan. And all these peoples are identified with people groups in the southern Arabian Peninsula, uh, roughly the equivalent of modern-day Saudi Arabia. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go towards Safar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem. Notice again, the basis of the division. According to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word for family is? That's a rough one. Mishpocha. Mishpocha. Yeah, families. These are the mishpochot, the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Okay, here's the table of the nations, or the mishpochot, families of the nations. Why is it in there? Uh, what's the prophet, if 2 Timothy 3.16 is true? couple thoughts in closing. One, this really represents the unity of the human race. Every single person in this room, every single person, traces his or her beginnings to Noah and specifically one of his sons, either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Every single person here. I know we're not brothers and sisters in the spiritual sense apart from Christ, but in the humanity sense, we are brothers and sisters. This is chapter demonstrates the unity of humankind. So you know what this does to me, I hope, Maybe to you. It rules out racial superiority (laughs) as a legitimate position for any thinking person, let alone a Christian. How could one race, though there are differences, I got this, linguistic and political and national and ethnic, I understand that. But how could one race assert itself as being superior to any other when in fact we are all mishpachot, We come from the same family deriving our beginning from Noah or one of his sons, Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Folks, we speak different languages. We vote differently at the polls. We live in different places. I got all that. Fine, fine, fine. And uh, should one be pleased, maybe even a little proud, about one's ethnicity and nationality and language group? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if it goes to asserting your ethnicity, your linguistic group, your national group, your political group as over against another, as if you have an inherent superiority, then you missed the point of Genesis 10. You missed it. Now, I'm all for civil rights legislation. Don't get me wrong, but Christians should need that. We should just need Genesis 10 for crying out loud. We came out of the same mold. To discriminate against someone of a different ethnicity... Look, do what you want, you know, I, you make your own choices. But it's an irrational kind of thing to subjugate one group, to put down one group, to have the upper hand over a group, to move out of the neighborhood if someone of another group moves in, all this kind of stuff. Do what you want to do. But if you're a Christian and a biblicist, for crying out loud, you missed the whole point of Genesis chapter 10. This rules out racism. It's the unity of um Humankind, mankind, we're all mishpacha. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. 
These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. There it is. That's where you got your start, right here in Genesis 10. That's where I got my start, right here in Genesis 10. How dare I lord anything over you or you over me? It's an absolutely irrational, unbiblical thing, racism. Two, first point, unity of humankind. Two, God loves the diversity of people groups. Now, I know we're scattered in all the rest. And get ready because he's going to be bringing us all together. We see a foreshadowing of it in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost, when the language barriers were removed on that particular day. And if you read in Revelation, God loves the fact that he will be receiving praise from every kindred and tongue and people group on earth. He loves the fact that people will praise him in Spanish and French and Hebrew and Arabic and Swahili and all this, and Texan, all this kind. God loves it. I mean, we are doing our best to do away with the differences, to dominate one over against the other and live in our own neighborhoods and all this kind of stuff. And we're not going to get it worked out this side of heaven. I, know, I, I understand that. But God is. And he loves the fact that from the diversity of people groups, he will receive praise in common. What a slam in the face of Satan who tries to use race and ethnicity and politics, national origin to divide, God will say, but I can pull everyone together through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 10 tells me about the unity of the human race and also that God loves the diversity therein. And then the third and final thing, as I mentioned, this is not meant to be a lesson in historical geography, which is why it's not precise. We've had to guess at some of the names. We don't know where Asian people are placed specifically and all the rest. If God wanted us to know this with scientific precision, he easily could do it. It's more a theological statement than a historical geographical statement. And the messianic statement is this. God starts off creating humankind his own image. Adam and Eve, he gives them one measly directive, don't do this, and they do that. And since they did that, my heavens, a sin of rebellion against Almighty God, terrible things interrupt the family, fratricide, one man killing a brother takes place. People start hiding from God, trying to cover up for their sinful nakedness by making religion, you know, an apron of their own leaves and all this kind of stuff. And then terrible things happened in Genesis 6, to Brother Chuck's credit. He did get stuck with this one. Remember when it said the, something about the sons of God mating with the daughters of men? Remember that one? Who knows what that means? All I know is it wasn't a good deal. It was a horrific deal. It was so evil, so immoral, whatever it is, that God intervened with the universal. It wasn't local. It was a universal flood. And people didn't learn from what happened to Genesis 3. After Genesis 6, you got the universal flood. And then after the flood, good night, the flood, even the flood didn't resolve human sin. You saw what happened with Noah. He gets drunk. He's naked. His son is getting a kick out of this. What the heck? Are you kidding me? And then it gets worse. And wait till you see the next chapter for crying out loud. I'm t- it's not people missing choir practice. These are people really, really stooping to the depth of immorality. This is hot on the heels of the flood. What would you if you were God? You say, man, I kept eight alive, eight too many. I'm wiping out everybody now. I may keep a couple dogs. I like dogs, but that's about it. The rest of you are gone. Remember, he doesn't do that. Hot on the heels of Genesis after Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, humankind saying, in your face, God, you told us to spread out. No way, we're digging in. Hot on the heels of that. We have Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, move from Ur of the Chaldees. Go to the place I'll tell you. And from you, I'll bless the peoples of the world. You see God showing us the messianic line of promise, hot on the heels of human sin. I need Genesis 10 to tell me the one thing we humans have in common is that we sin like the Dickens. Let me just tell you, in thought, word, and deed. No people groups immune from that. That's a common denominator. And here's something we need in common, a solution. The flood won't do it. No, apparently not. <clears throat> I need the grace and mercy of God, which is greater than all my sin. And God is showing us as he traces through the messianic line. It's not an afterthought. It's not like God had a good day and feels favorably disposed towards us. No way. From beginning of time, hot on the heels of all this terrible sin, 
degradation, hot on the heels of it, God is ushering in a redemptive plan which will save those Jews and Gentiles, black and white, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're seeing it germinate way back here in Genesis. And we're going to see it more through Abraham and then through Isaac and then through Jacob. This is why I know Reverend Moon is not the Messiah. I don't know if you're worrying about that. See, Reverend, is he still alive, by the way? Did he, did he die? Okay, so now he knows he's not the Messiah. But he, <laughs> he, he thought, he, he, he thought he was the guy. I mean, I mean, he can't be. With all due respect to Asian people, Korean people. See, it has to go through Shem, Eber, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know what I'm, what I'm saying? God, God, this is so serious. God doesn't want to leave it to chance. You don't have to guess about who the Redeemer is. It's Jesus. He's the only one who could possibly, and we will see that, Lord willing, in more graphic form as we get to Genesis 11 next week. Lord Jesus, we bow before you for good reason. It's not a blind leap from logic to faith to believe. It's a very logical decision to see you to be the solution to our sin problem. And by the way, the only solution to our sin problem. Now, why you did it, it can simply be explained by your grace. It is an amazing grace which far surpasses even our horrific capacity to sin. That's why we worship you and bow before you. We believe you're the only way because you're the only way. You satisfy the prerequisites for Messiahship in manifold ways. You trace your line of descent, the Messianic line, just as, just as the Father made it clear to us even here in the early stages of Genesis. Oh God, it's our heart's desire for many, many more, for many, many more people groups on earth to behold you, to bow before you, to worship you now. And then as a great, great privilege throughout eternity. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks.